As we come closer to the end of the year, it's just natural for us to take a look at what's happened. Where we've been, where we've come from, where we're going, what's happened to us. We think about the good and the bad. We think about what we've learned and what we need to learn. And as I think about this year, and all that's happened, and the years that lead up to it, and especially for the members of this congregation, I know that many of us can think of some pretty devastating things. Within the congregation, we've had folks, some of us who've been very sick. Some continually endure ongoing illnesses that cause pain and ill health frequently. Some of us have lost spouses. Some of us have lost parents. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have watched as children or other family members continually make bad decisions that impact the entire family. Some of us have endured marital problems. Some of us have been taken advantage of. Some of us have had financial issues that have come up. Some of us have had health problems that put us into debt. Some of us have had tax problems that put us into debt. As a congregation, we've had struggles and problems. Some of our friends have fallen away. Some of them just left and went other places, but not necessarily on friendly terms. And when we start listing these things out like this, it's very easy to get discouraged. Have you ever, in moments like these, where you're thinking about all the things that you've endured, and all the struggles that you've faced, wanted to turn to God and ask, don't you care? And a lot of times when we ask those kind of questions, we feel guilty. It's easy for us to take a look at the Scriptures and look at our favorite characters through rose-colored glasses, acting as if, they always had the strength to always know that Jesus does care, that God cares. And yet, in reality, our Bible heroes have faced everything we've faced and have asked all the questions we've asked. Think about Abraham, who couldn't understand why God couldn't just go ahead and use Ishmael. Or Moses, who complained about having to continually deal with all those rebellious people. Think about Job. Or Elijah, who wanted to die because Jezebel was after him. David, who wrote Psalm 22, which began, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reality is there is nothing that we have felt or even said in the inner recesses and privacy of our heart, because we certainly don't want anybody else to know we said it. There's nothing that we've said in our hearts that our Bible heroes did not feel and did not say. And we can learn from them. And there's one story that I want us to focus on this morning. In fact, I think I've seen that most of you have already turned to Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. It's the story of a storm, and it's the story of disciples who thought Jesus didn't care. I'd like for us to look at this story this morning, and then we've got about six lessons that we can learn from it. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35, reads, and I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning. It says, On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. 
Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Examine the story with me this morning and let's learn that Jesus does care. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we are humbled in your presence. We have faced some dreadful things because that's the world we live in. A world where sin is, where Satan reigns, and because of that, people make unwise choices. People sin and it impacts us. People get sick and die. Bad things happen, but we know that through it all that you care and that you're with us, and you carry us through it, and all these things will pass, and one day we'll be with you forever in heaven, and we won't suffer like this anymore. Father, it's easy for us to become discouraged, but we pray that you would encourage us. Strengthen us with your will. Strengthen us with your word. Strengthen us with your children. Help us always to look to you. Father, we love you, and we thank you that you have loved us. Thank you for your Son who calms the storms. Thank you for your spirit who has revealed your will. Thank you for your church that strengthens and helps us and holds us accountable. Thank you for this congregation. We pray that you would be a blessing to us and that we might be a blessing to you. Help us to demonstrate to the world that you do care. It's through your Son, whose death demonstrates your care and love, that we pray. Amen. Need a little background on the story. We're going to focus on the story as it's told in Mark. But to set the stage for this, I'd really like you to look at the account in Matthew chapter 8. Because there's something here that I think we need to recognize to really get this story in its context. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 18, it says that when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds they, they of the air they have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It was as if to say, Are you sure? You want to follow me? Are you sure? I don't even have a bed to lay down on. I don't have a home. You want to follow me? Then someone else came up to him, and another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my dead. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. This disciple, one who is supposedly already following Jesus, says, I, I want to follow you. I want to follow you to the other side of the sea, but first, got to go take care of my father. He died, and I've got to bury him. And Jesus, in one of the most shocking statements, basically said, Look, if you want to follow me, don't let anything get in the way. Not even family. And then Matthew, as it describes the story in verse 23, says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I believe it's worded like that on purpose. These disciples who went with Jesus across the sea, they didn't just happen to get into the same boat with Jesus. They were making a commitment, a sacrificial, tough, loving commitment. We're going to follow him. And it just stands to reason, at least in our minds today, that if these guys were going to make this kind of decision, I mean, there were others 
that were willing to let family get in the way. There were others that weren't willing to make the sacrifice. But these men were willing to commit to Jesus. They were willing to follow Him. And it just stands to reason that Jesus ought to keep them out of the storms. It just stands to reason that if we're going to make this kind of decision to follow Jesus, then He ought to make life simple. But when we read what happened in the story, especially as it's recorded in Mark chapter 4, we see something different. They get out on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus has fallen asleep, obviously exhausted from all the teaching and work that He's done. And as was wont on the Sea of Galilee, rushing winds coming down from the surrounding hills and mountains caused a sudden gale to come up on the sea. And the wind and the waves are tossing the boat back and forth. And keep in mind, this is not an ocean liner. This is a fishing boat. Now, it's, it's a little bit bigger than the little aluminum fishing boats we have in our yard that we take out bass fishing, but it's, it's a fishing boat. And so you can just picture it as the sea is tossing and going back and forth, this little boat. And the text tells us that not only was it tossing it back and forth, but it was already filling up. If the boat doesn't capsize, it's going to sink. And the disciples begin to realize, if we're going to survive, we've all got to do our part. I can picture that one of the experienced fishermen, the sailors, Peter, Andrew, James, or John, started shouting out commands. I'm going to steer the ship. You get the sails. Somebody start bailing water. We need some people manning the oars. If we're going to survive, everybody has to do their part. Everybody understood this, except, it seems, Jesus. He was asleep in the stern. What's up with that? Picture it. There's Peter trying to steer the boat. There's Andrew and James trying to get the sails down so that it doesn't whip them around. There's somebody manning oars to try to keep them pushed in the right direction. There's others that are just bailing water out. And then there's Jesus, sacked out. And I can picture it in my mind as they start to try to holler, but they can't quite get above the the noise of the wind and the waves, and somebody finally struggles to where Jesus is and shakes him awake and says, don't you care that we're perishing? As if to say, look, Jesus, if we're going to survive, we've all got to be working. Get to work. And Jesus stands up and does the completely unexpected. Instead of grabbing a bucket to start dumping water, instead of grabbing an oar trying to help with the sails, or instead of grabbing a rope, he just looks at the wind and the waves. He says, hush, be still. And it happened. I can't even get that to work with my kids. But Jesus was able to do it with the wind and the waves. And I can picture it now, the look on Peter, Andrew, James, and John's face, who no doubt had been in this kind of thing before, as they're, as they're holding the bucket and they're still kind of dumping some water out, but with one eye, they're just focused on Jesus. And Jesus says, how is it that you have no faith? Why are you afraid? But they were afraid. And they started talking among themselves, who then is this? Who can tell the wind and the waves what to do? 
What an amazing story. Six lessons that we can learn from this story. The very first lesson, storms happen. Storms happen to committed disciples. I fear that at times we allow our American mentality to override what, what it should be as Christians. You see, because we live in an age of plenty, because we live in an age of rights and entitlements, we have the idea that life should be easy because we become Christians. But that's not the way it works. Storms happen. We recently read in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 28. You remember the story of the wise and the foolish man? The one builds his house on the rock and the other on the sand. The wise man didn't avoid the storms. He just had learned the wisdom to withstand the storms. But what we learned is the storms happen. Of course, we know about persecution. Acts chapter 14, verse 22 says that through much tribulation we enter the kingdom. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we kind of put that off to the side and say, yes, we know that we're supposed to go through that, but surely God is not going to make us go through just the, the awful things that just happen in life. I've made the decision to follow Him. Surely He could give me something back. He has given you something back. And we know that. But I want you to notice Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16. Paul, writing to Christians, said, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Brethren, the days are evil for us as much as they are for anyone else. We get sick. Our family dies. We lose jobs. Business ventures fail. Children disappoint. Spouses disappoint. Friends, brethren, and neighbors take advantage. Now, don't get me wrong. Lots of good things happen to us, and we need to remember that. But we've got to understand. The days are evil for us, just like they are everyone else. Storms happen to committed disciples. The second lesson. Why do storms happen? I'll tell you why. Why did this storm happen? I want you to think about this. They get in the boat, Jesus falls asleep. If there had been no storm, the disciples would have been happy to leave Jesus asleep, sit in the, in the back of the boat. I think that's the stern. In the back of the boat. They'd have been happy just to leave him asleep. And they would have sailed across the sea and they would have landed the boat confident in their own sailing ability. But the storm happened. And they were doing all they could, but it wasn't good enough. And they had to turn to Jesus. Because of the storm, they couldn't just allow Jesus to remain asleep. You see, the storms happened to drive us to Jesus. Once again, our American citizenship gets in the way of our Christianity. Because you see, as Americans, we are rugged individualists. We pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. And we blazed the trail. We paved the way. We've done it ourselves. Look at how wonderful we are. The storms occur to get us to realize how weak we are. 
We spend most of our time convincing ourselves we're strong enough to handle everything. And when other people are going through storms, we spend most of our time trying to convince them they're strong enough to handle it. We're not. And we need to quit fooling ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 7, Paul says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Only when we realize how weak we are can we access the strength of Christ. It was only when the disciples realized we can't do this, we need more help, that they turned to Jesus and then the strength of Jesus acted and calmed the storm. Storms happen to drive us to Jesus. Lesson three. Was Jesus lying asleep because he was unaware? Was Jesus lying asleep because he was unconcerned? Of course not. You know, it seems to us that the way Jesus should have handled this is just keeping the storm from happening at all. But what was best for the disciples was that they saw the storm and then saw Jesus' power over the storm. That was... Not just an event. This is a life-changing experience. This is a faith-building experience. And what we learn here is that Jesus does care. But His caring doesn't mean that He does everything our way. Jesus does care, but He acts in His own way and in His own time so that it most benefits us. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7 says that we can cast our anxieties upon God because He cares for us. He does care. That doesn't mean that it's all just going to happen the way we think it ought to. Consider that passage we read moments ago in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul thought that that thorn in the flesh would be removed. But God recognized that if that thorn in the flesh was removed, it would make Paul more susceptible to vainglory and pride and arrogance because of the great revelations that he had. You see, God did care about Paul. But He didn't just care about that physical problem he had going on. He cared about the spiritual well-being. Sometimes I think we miss that, but that's for another lesson. God's a lot more worried about our spirits than our bodies. But think about Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. This passage doesn't say that God causes all things, but it does say He causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. We're in the storm. The disciples were in the storm. And it looked for a moment like Jesus didn't even care. But He does care. He's looking at the big picture and understanding what will most help the disciples. And when we're in the midst of our storms, that is exactly what God is doing. He's looking at the big picture and what will most help us. And though we think that what will most help us is having an easy life, that's just not the case. What will most help us are the challenges that storms present that cause us to grow. 
lesson four. Jesus can calm the storm. The disciples turned to Jesus because they wanted His help. But it's apparent from verse 41 that they had no idea how much help He could really offer because they were amazed when He demonstrated His authority. They had faith that Jesus could do something. I mean, after all, this is the guy who can control the fish, he can cast out demons, he can heal the sick. But they still didn't quite understand the vast amount of His power. He can't speak to the wind and it'll stop. He can talk to the waves and they'll calm down. That is power. He can't calm the storms. He can calm your storms. I don't know what you're facing. I know what some of you are facing, but not everybody. I don't know how bad it's been for you. I don't know how tough it is, and I don't know how long it's going to last. But I know this. Jesus can calm the storm. Look in John 1. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. We know from verse 14 that the Word became flesh. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the creative force that built everything we see. If He can create all of this, He can calm your storm. Consider this picture. How often do our children come home with a problem that to them just seems devastating? It seems to them like it's the end of the world. But we, with a little more experience, a little more knowledge, recognize that really it's not that bad. We're like those little children. Going to our Father, thinking that our world is about to end. And God is our loving Father who listens and loves and consoles. And when it is best for us, we'll calm the storm. Because He does care. And He can calm it. Lesson 5. In the story in Mark chapter 4, it's a story about peace. In which verse do you see the picture of true peace? Is it in verse 39 when he rebuked the wind saying, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. I mean, that looks like peace. It's perfectly calm. The water is just smooth as glass. I mean, that's, that's where you want to be when you're skiing. That's not the picture of true peace in this passage. The picture of true peace is actually up in verse 37. There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus Himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. There's the real peace. The real peace is not when everything was easy. The real peace demonstrated here is that in the midst of the gale, in the midst of the wind, the water's coming over the side of the boat, it's rocking back and forth, and Jesus is just sleeping like a baby. 
Because you see, real peace is not living in perpetual calm, but having faith through the storms. That's where there's real peace. Real peace is not being on a calm, even keel because the water's calm. Real peace is being on a calm, even keel when the water's rocking. When the storms have come. That's real peace. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 4. In verse 7, when he talks about the fact that, he said in verse 6, that we're anxious for nothing and let God know about our cares. In verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what, it surpasses my comprehension that Jesus could be on a boat that's rocking back and forth. Disciples are shouting. Water is spraying in on top of Him. And He's laying there asleep. That surpasses my comprehension. But that's peace. You see, that's the peace of having a real relationship with God. Having your relationship with God settled before the storms begin. The story is told of a young man who was hired by a rancher. The rancher in the interview asked him why he was qualified for the job, and the young man said, because I can sleep when the wind blows. What? I'm qualified because I can sleep when the wind blows. The rancher thought that was kind of odd and thought he was making a big, taking a big chance to hire this guy, but he thought, well, it can't be any worse than some other guys that I've hired before. And besides that, I'd really like to know what on earth he means. I can sleep when the wind blows. So the young man came on board and he started working and things were going great. He was awesome. He was the best worker the man had ever had. But then one night, a storm hit. And the rancher went to the worker's quarter. He woke the young man up. He said, quick, a storm's here. We've got to get out there and make sure the horses are stable properly. He said, I've already done that. The rancher said, great, we've got to get out there still and make sure that all the equipment's put up properly and protected. The young man said, already done that. He said, great, we've still got to get out there and make sure that the barn is secure and latched down. He already done that. You see, that's why I can sleep when the wind blows. Because I make sure it's already done right before the storm starts. You see, that's having peace knowing that our relationship with God is settled before the storm happens. Final lesson. We must allow storms to strengthen our faith, not cripple it. How many people turn from Jesus when the storms hit? We shouldn't allow the storms to turn us from Jesus, but rather drive us toward Jesus. We shouldn't allow the storms to cause us to question the wisdom, the concern, or the ability of Jesus, but to increase our faith in it. We shouldn't allow the storms to conquer our peace, but to strengthen it. James chapter 1. Beginning at verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, 
beginning at verse 3. And not only this, Paul wrote, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's what trials do. Trials give us hope. Because the storm provides us with perseverance. And perseverance gives us proven character. And that proven character is what gives us hope. But if we turn away in the middle of the storm, we've lost all hope. You see, Jesus does care. Storms will happen to us. But they're happening to drive us to Jesus. And I hope they will let you turn, let them turn you to Him.